uh, whenever you're ready, sir. All right. Good afternoon, commissioners, DPH staff, and members of the public, and welcome to the Health Commission meeting of Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023. Secretary Morowitz, would you please call the roll? Sure. Commissioner Chung? Present. Commissioner Guillermo? Present. Commissioner Bernal? Present. And Commissioner Green? Present. Now I will hand it over to, or to Commissioner Guillermo, who will offer the Ramitush Alone land acknowledgement. Thank you, President Bernal. The San Francisco Health Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramitush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in, in accordance with their traditions, the Ramitush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramaytush Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you, Commissioner Guillermo. Um, our next item for action is the approval of the minutes of the Health Commission meeting of September 19th, 2023. Commissioners, you have the minutes and have reviewed them. If there are no amendments, could we have a motion to approve? Move to approve. Second. All, right. All those in favor? Oh, actually, I'm sorry. We need to do the public Oh, sorry. Uh, public okay. comment. Uh, and I don't have my um, uh, script with me, but um, I will note that um, we always take uh, folks who've received a disability accommodation first, um, and then we move into um, those uh, folks who without um, accommodation. I see one hand. Um, if at the moment, we're only taking those who have received accommodation from me. Um, I may please unmute that person and we'll give them three minutes. Right. Uh, hi, hi, I'm uh, Commissioner Patrick Manatsot, Code AA. Please begin. Uh, thank you. These minutes report that Dr. Terry Palmer me and others have continually raised the issue of what the commission's long-term plans are to prevent another recurrence of the gross mismanagement of Laguna Hunter Hospital. It appears the commission has already considered extending the health services advisory group contract when it expires in September 2024 for an additional period of time. I think that's according to the minutes of the Commission's uh, Finance and Planning Committee when they were, uh, when Commissioner Chow asked if that contract is going to be extended again. And so, um, Wondering, is permanently hiring HSAG for annual contract renewals at $10 million, excuse me, $10 million each and every year into the foreseeable future? Is that the plan to provide um, greater oversight to prevent mismanagement of Laguna Honda Hospital? Is that your solution to increasing oversight of Laguna Honda? Thank you. 
That is the only uh, public comment for this item, commissioners. All right, commissioners, any comments or questions? If not, we'll go to a vote. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? The minutes are approved. Our next item for action is a resolution honoring Dr. Lisa, oh, go ahead. I'm so, no, I'm sorry, you are correct, I apologize. A resolution honoring Dr. Lisa Goldman. We have Dr. Navina Baba, Deputy Director of Health here to present on this topic. Hi, there's no mic. Uh, the mic is that, uh, that black bar, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Commissioners. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Golden. So Dr. Lisa Golden has contributed to the health and well-being of San Francisco for over 34 years. Her career has spanned multiple parts of the department, most recently heading our KPO office. As the Commission is aware, through her previous presentations, Dr. Golden has been instrumental in bringing lean to the department, which has provided us the structure and vision to develop the strategic priorities. What I most appreciate about Lisa is her ability to quickly assess the current state, understand the problem, and develop countermeasures. She embodies lean principles in every conversation. I have personally learned so much from her and will miss her clear thinking and ability to take complex issues and articulate a path forward. I wish her the best in retirement and look forward to hearing about all the exciting, wonderful places she will be visiting in the future. I wanted to take this moment to extend my gratitude for her contributions and years of service. And I will read the draft resolution before you all take, um, move forward to take action. Whereas Dr. Lisa Golden has served the city and county of San Francisco as an exceptional leader at the Department of Public Health over three decades and making tremendous contributions to the department's efforts to align strategic initiatives and continuously improve the performance. And whereas Dr. Golden has held several DPH positions including physician at Ocean Park Health Center, medical director of Ocean Park Health Center, medical director of quality improvement for primary care, chief quality officer for ambulatory care, and most recently as the director of uh, DPH Kaizen promotion office. And whereas Dr. Golden oversaw the task of developing this DPH strategic plan, monitoring mechanisms and coordinating the complex implementation of the plan throughout the department, and whereas through her work developing and overseeing the Kaizen promotional office, Dr. Golden created an infrastructure that makes improvement part of each DPH employee's daily work. Every new employee is oriented to improvement as a central part of the DPH work and throughout the department. And whereas Dr. Golden convened the Lean Executive Council with the DPH executive staff every quarter to discuss approaches to improving performance across the DPH, and whereas Dr. Golden served in multiple roles in the COVID-19 activation involved with strategy and process design from the first month of the COVID pandemic emergency response. She also led formation and ongoing outbreak response in our most vulnerable congregate settings. She was instrumental in transitional planning as we navigated through the many changes, uh, both during the COVID pandemic response and longer term strategy to transition response efforts back to the department operations. Whereas Dr. Golden is known for her innovation creativity, and always being willing to volunteer to address the many complex issues at the DPH. And whereas Dr. Golden leaves a legacy of service and leadership to support and improve the lives of all San Franciscans, she will be dearly missed by many at the DPH and in the greater San Francisco public health communities. Resolved that the San Francisco Health Commission honors Dr. Lisa Golden for her outstanding service and leadership and wishes her well in her retirement. All right, uh, before we go into any public comment or uh, comments from commissioners or, or our director, of course, we will uh, need a motion to approve the resolution. So moved. Okay, uh, any public comment? 
see no public comment on this item at this time of anyone in the room. And then um, uh, folks online, this is, uh, we're on item three, resolution honoring Dr. Lisa Golden, press star three if you'd like to make comment. I see no hands. Okay, we'll begin with Director Colfax. Well, thank you, Commissioners. And I just um, want to celebrate uh, Dr. Golden's incredible service to the department and to San Francisco for three and a half decades. Um, as you heard from the resolution, she has done a tremendous amount of work, has played many different leadership roles, and I've had the pleasure of working with her for uh, these last uh, few years and, and really so deeply respect her wisdom, her patience, uh, and her consistency. Um, and really, as, as Dr. Baba had described, embodying, and embodying lean uh, principles and one of those principles is go to to go to where the work is actually being done to observe and to ask questions. And it, there's a lot that goes on in the department. And uh, Dr. Golden uh, was instrumental in ensuring that in crises, um, in particularly complex situations, um, in situations where improvement needed to be made, uh, was instrumental in being a key resource in helping us think through how do we develop a structure? How do we develop key outcomes to improve? How do we ensure that we adjust uh, as more information comes in? And how do we ensure that we are always consistent in our methodology? And that was critically important during COVID. Uh, I, I knew that Dr. Golden's efforts were successful when other departments started asking me about lean and how does that happen and how did it work? Um, and any, you know, from doing test sites and vaccine sites on the ground to the COVID dashboard, uh, Dr. Golden's leadership was instrumental. Most recently, um, she has deployed her team uh, to Laguna Honda. They were vital in moving forward with a recertification and quality improvement there. And these were things that are sustainable. And that's the thing that I really value so much about Dr. Golden's work and leadership is these are, these are not shiny objects. These are things that actually uh, get embedded. And she, she is uh, subtle and yet very powerful in ensuring that uh, cultural change around uh, quality improvement and sustainability uh, take, takes root, uh, grows, and flourishes across the department. So thank you, Dr. Golden, for your incredible leadership. Thank you, Director Colfax. Commissioners, other comments? Commissioner Chung. I, I was just gonna say, I still remember when I first started, um, I, when I first get appointed to the commission, that's when um, the, the, the DPH is like implementing um, the lean principles and you know like and I was asking the same questions I say how do you turn that into a culture you can say that you want to improve something and then what do you do afterward how do you make sure that everybody that comes after would like pick up the same type of practices so I don't I cannot picture that to be easy task and thank you for like doing all the work and congratulations on your retirement Vice President Green Yes, well, first of all, your contributions have been absolutely remar remarkable. And I think when, when Commissioner Guerrero and I were first training and lean seemed absolutely overwhelming, and then it was taught to us the way you distilled it, 
your ability to take really complex concepts, both in terms of all of the COVID work that, that uh, Director Colfax has discussed, but also these lean principles. It was overwhelming, yet I think we were able to understand it. And every single time we're at the JCC at the county, we see the benefits of all of your contributions. I don't think we can express it enough, you know, between the Kaizens and all of the way that lean has improved care for patients and for all of the um, residents of San Francisco. It's the backbone and, and it could have, you know, gone so off the rails without someone like you to, to shepherd this amazingly complex uh, way of dealing with a master department to, to the point we are today, which is so incredibly successful and so critical, you know, for all of the, the um, achievements we, we've seen. So we are so appreciative to you. We will really miss you. And you, you make great choices in sweater colors. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, thank you. And, and Dr. Golden, I'd like to associate with my comment, with the comments of my fellow commissioners here. When I first came on the commission years ago, um, learning about the lean process and lean principles was a very important part of my understanding the way that this very large and complex department works and how these principles are infused in the work across the entire department. And I have no doubt that in addition to your work and leadership during COVID, that your work in the Kaizen Promotion Office put us on the footing that was necessary to mount the most effective and inclusive COVID response in the country. Um, so just so grateful to you for your work for really really transforming uh, along with your team, the culture of this department and putting us um, in a very strong direction, really having us prepare for really what, what an unprecedented crisis uh, where you were so engaged too. So thank you so much for your leadership and, and, and for your work. And I would like to uh, offer you the opportunity to say a few words before we vote. <laughs> before the vote. <laughs> Well, first of all, it really warms my heart to hear the enthusiasm for lean and how the both the principles, the behaviors and language is being spread across the department and hopefully to other agencies as well. So thank you for that. Um, I feel very privileged to have been able to work across the department with so many incredible people uh, and across other agencies as well. I feel like it's a privilege that one doesn't always get in the department, so I really, really appreciate that. And the fact that there are opportunities to build a career here, to actually develop oneself and to have a variety of different um, activities, uh, responsibilities and work. So uh, thank you very much. I really wish the department and the Health Commission all the best as you continue to do the good work of protecting and promoting the health of San Franciscans, so thank you. Great. Thank you, Dr. Golden. I think we can go to a vote now. All those in favor of the approving the resolution honoring Dr. Lisa Golden. Aye. Aye. Opposed? Not opposed? Thank you very much. Mr. Secretary, are we doing a photo? Okay. Anyone here to take a photo? <laughs> yes, yes. Hey, uh, please, great. let's do that. Commissioners, can we go up to the front of the
Thank you. All right, we spend our time up here behind the dais. That almost felt like a field trip. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our next item is general public comment. <laughs> uh, this time, yes, at this time, members of the public may address the commission on items of interest to the public that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the commission that are not on this meeting agenda. With respect to agenda items, your opportunity to address the commission will be afforded when the item is reached in the meeting. Each member of the public may address the commission for up to three minutes. The Brown Act forbids the commission from taking action or discussing any item not appearing on the posted agenda including those raised in public comment. So we'll first ask anyone in the room, um, would anyone in the room like to make public comment? No. All right, so I see one hand um, on the public comment line. Jaime, please unmute that person. I'll give three minutes on the clock. Excuse me. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Mr. Morowitz. Patrick Manetshaw. This testimony is about items not on today's agenda. So please don't cut me off. During the Board of Supervisors Committee in the Hall hearing on September 26th, Roland Pickens uh, answered a question from Supervisor Raphael Mandelman about DPH's plans to present a report from the Behavioral Health Working Group during a health commission meeting in October about DPH's plans to create additional behavioral health and substance abuse treatment beds in San Francisco, including recommendations to potentially expand behavioral health and substance abuse beds at Laguna Honda Hospital. Since there is no presentation on this topic today, and Mr. Pickens said that a report would be presented in October, does that uh, portend that that report is going to be presented to the LHHJCC on October 10th or at the second full Health Commission meeting on October 17th. Members of the community deserve to receive this report and its eventual recommendations in advance of that hearing so that we can thoughtfully consider the implications of whatever recommendations are presented about bifurcating Laguna Honda and essentially pitting um, long-term care skilled nursing patients um, against behavioral health patients who have had no substantial additional treatment that created in long 
long-term care settings. They justifiably need those beds, too, but you shouldn't be robbing Peter to pay Paul by reducing the availability of traditional skilled nursing facility beds um, at Laguna Honda at the expense of having to discharge additional San Franciscans out of county who need uh, traditional long-term care skilled nursing facilities. Thank you. Time is up. Great. Thank you. Uh, that is the only comment under general public comment. Commissioner. Okay. Our next item is the director's report. Dr. Grant Colfax, director of health. Good Dr. afternoon. Cole. Good afternoon, commissioners. Um, here to provide the director's report. Number of items. I'll go through them quickly and answer any questions if you'd like a deeper dive. Really pleased to announce that DPH uh, launched the drug overdose and treatment uh, dashboard on September 18th. This dashboard features the most recent available data related to substance use treatment and overdoses. And in uh, her update later today, Dr. Cunnins will provide uh, more information there, uh, but a very important step forward in terms of uh, ensuring that people have access to data on this uh, terrible and tragic epidemic. I'm also uh, pleased to give you an update on Laguna Honda, that Laguna Honda has uh, hired two exceptional and exceptional and exceptionally qualified leaders to join our executive team as our new directors of nursing. Uh, they are Tracy Brown and Michael Collins, who've had remarkable co careers in healthcare, including extensive experience in SNFs and long-term care. At Laguna Honda, they will fill roles that are essential to the restructuring the, the organization that we have created in our transformative work to turn Laguna Honda into a world-class uh, skilled nursing facility. Also uh, pleased to announce that as of October 1st, um, we were San Francisco was one of the first seven counties in California to implement uh, the Community Assistance Recovery and Empowerment Care Act, uh, also known as Care Court. The Care Act, which passed the state legislature and was signed by the governor last year, includes a new civil court process that can that provides community-based behavioral health services to residents who are living with untreated schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders. Uh, it is important to note that uh, participation in the program is voluntary, but we are hopeful that we'll provide another tool to engage those who are not currently in care. Also wanted to announce that one of our DPH team members, um, Sammy Trung, um, has been appointed to the new Refugee Health Coordinator for San Francisco, San Mateo, and Marin counter, counties, and will oversee DPH's newcomers health program, newcomer health programs, refugees health assessment services, um, which is uh, partially funded by the state's Office of Refugee Health, and you can read more details in in that uh, in that uh, in that item. And then really another um, an, another celebration of our, our DPH staff with regard to the Fearless Initiative on September 26th, uh, DPH staffers Jenny Chacon, Isela Ford, and community partners, including uh, Institute of Familiar de la Raza and Mita, were selected as one of 15 teams of rising public health and community leaders from around the country to, par to participate in the inaugural cohort of the Public Health Regenerative Leadership Synergy Initiative. 
And this is uh, supported by a number of organizations, including the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and really uh, pleased that they were selected as rising leaders for this uh, important uh, uh, program. And then you have the COVID-19 update numbers uh, in your report, just to say that we did see that increase uh, over the last couple of, of weeks in terms of hospitalizations and test positivity rate. We have now apparently plateaued. From the data we have, we appear to have plateaued and hospitalizations are even going down slightly. And I'm pleased to say with regard to the updated COVID vaccine, it took uh, more time than we would have liked, but we were able to finally secure uh, a vaccine for our publicly funded sites, as you know, uh, pharmacy, private pharmacies received the vaccine, I believe, about a week ago, and we're encouraging uh, everyone for whom the vaccine is recommended to get that uh, updated vaccine. So I will stop there and answer any questions from the commission. Thank you. All right. Before we go into commissioner comments or questions, any public comment? Uh, is there anyone in the room who would like to make public comment on this item? All right. So I see two hands. Again, we start off with the folks who've received uh, accommodations. I see three hands. I've only given permission uh, accommodation to two. So if you've not emailed me and gotten a two letter code, please take your hand down now so that everyone can be fair. Um, Jaime, let's start with caller two. Uh, yeah, good afternoon. It's Patrick again. While it is encouraging that Laguna Honda's two directors of nursing Tracy Brown and Michael Collins have finally been hired. There is still no word on the status of hiring Laguna Honda's medical director. According to public records, Laguna Honda paid two invoices to Berkeley Search Consultants for the medical director um, position. One was due on completion of the recruitment brochure phase and one invoice would be due on closing date and presentation of candidate slate presented phase at $20,000 each for a total of $46,000. What's the status on hiring Laguna Honda's medical director? Did you receive invoices number three and four from Berkeley Search Consultants for an additional 46000 for the medical director of recruitment? Was Berkeley Search Consultants or another recruiting firm involved in identifying qualified candidates and hiring of Ms. Brown and Mr. Collins for the director of nursing positions? What were the two the total costs of hiring the two directors of nursing. Were they placed by Berkeley Search Consultants or another search firm? Thank you. All right, thank you very much. Uh, Jaime, let's go to caller seven. Hi, um, this is Dr. Teresa Palmer. Mark, I asked you for accommodation, but I don't think I received your email, so I hope it's okay to speak. No, it is, Dr. Palmer. I gave it to you right before the meeting, and um, I recognize your number, oh, so please okay. go ahead, and I apologize for my tardiness in getting back to you. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> I, I'm just um, really nervous about um, getting admissions 
restarted, and also the immense both political and economic uh, pressure to um, admit inappropriate uh, patients uh, to Laguna Honda in order to serve the flow at San Francisco General, General Hospital. Um, you know, we, we do have um, in San Francisco, um, we do need more behavioral services and um, a lot of um, people that need services um, have uh, aged um, uh, beyond their years from, from the hard lives they've led. Uh, but again, um, Laguna Honda is not a mental health facility and um, people who are, um, whose behavioral is, is uncontrolled um, really can't be accommodated safely in a congregate facility uh, with frail, um, disabled and elderly people. And we really need to know that uh, mistakes that have been made in the past are not gonna be repeated. Um, and I think um, this was such a big part of putting the whole place into chaos and not being able to um, manage it properly um, because you had to um, hire administrative and uh, direct care uh, uh, clinical managers who were obedient and not competent. And I worry that not being able to attract a, a medical director is because of the unknowns around this, the politics of being forced uh, to agree to admit patients that are, are dangerous to themselves or others at Laguna Honda. And so I really would like you to be very transparent about this and um, um, about um, how um, Laguna Honda will be protected um, in its mission um, from patients that are a danger to themselves and others at Laguna Honda. Uh, the challenge of adequately care planning without, um, uh, without uh, breaking regulations, it, once they're in a nursing home and have all the rights of a nursing home patient is also um, almost impossible. And um, it's going to lead to, to, more, to more regulatory jeopardy if we're not, um, if there isn't a real realistic plan to not repeat history here. And um, we need services for these people, but many, but not, um, we need to not sacrifice Laguna Honda given the shortage of skilled nursing home beds for the community. Your time Thank is you up. so much. Thank you. Yeah. Jaime, please um, unmute the last caller. Hi, caller, you've got three minutes. Um, please let us know that you're there. Hi, yes, can you hear me? Yes, please begin. Okay, uh, interestingly enough, my concern is very similar to Dr. Palmer's. Um, I don't think there's been nearly enough public discussion of the impact of the flow project on the senior and disabled residents of Laguna Honda and possible adjustments or elimination of that unsuccessful blending of population. What is the plan? Thank you. Thank you. Those are the last uh, comments for this item, public comments. Commissioners, any comments or questions on the director's report? 
All right. Thank you, Dr. Colfax. Our next item is the Laguna Honda Hospital Gift Fund. This is an action item. We have Lily Conover, uh, Laguna Honda Chief Financial Officer, to present. Welcome. Thank you. Hello, Commissioners. Lily Conover, CFO at Laguna. Um, I, in your packet today, you should have the budget first actuals from last year and the budget for the upcoming or the current year. Um, so I'm going to just walk you through those two documents. And then I'm happy to answer any questions. So um, for fiscal 23, which budget you approved last year, um, we had 21,000 in revenue for the year. Most of that was interest. We had um, 3,000 in cash donations and $500 in in-kind donations, which was a donation from the, the Garden Club of St. Francis Wood, which is some clothing and toiletry type items. Um, so then moving down to the expenditure summary, we had a lot of our typical line items, um, activity therapy, uh, art, our art program, art with elders, all of these programs are back in full swing now that we've opened up and, and opened activities back up to the residents again. So it's really exciting to see those activities open up and we're still, we haven't moved forward completely with outings, but we're hoping to see that um, in this year. We're already starting to see some more outings happen than we have in pre the last few years. Um, there's a few line items that we didn't have any spend on last year, and those are kind of just due to timing, where we received requests towards the end of the year for the wish list, the COVID-related support, and we're, we're working on processing those now. So we'll see some of those expenses hit in this fiscal year. Um, and just going down a little further, I want to note the rehab program. A lot of the spending there is for a program that we call Molly's Fund, which is adaptive technology. Um, and then we're, we're merging a couple of the categories for the budget for next year. Uh, so the total spend for fiscal 23 was 203,000, which was, was less than our budget, but we were hoping, hoping to open up a bit more, open up those outings and other activities. And we just quite weren't quite there yet last year, but we hope to this year. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's not for you. Not for <laughs> I apologize. Um, for the budget for this year, uh, we, as we do every year, we have a gift fund committee. We review budget, uh, budget line items. We have them weigh in on which programs we think we want to increase, what we want to add or remove. So all of these line items have been weighed in on and approved by that committee. Um, so we're increasing the art, the activity therapy um, program a little bit this year. Um, art with elders uh, and some of the other kind of longstanding programs will remain the same. Um, we're increasing, we're hoping to increase our, um, our, our, which one is it? The holiday gift program this year with an increased threshold given how much um, cost of goods has gone up over the past couple of years. We want to increase that per resident holiday gift. So we got that approved last year, um, our, our policy uh, change approved. And so we should see that spending happen this year. Um, and just the bottom line on the budget is we're reducing it slightly, just given kind of the year over year ambitious target that we've had that we haven't quite hit. So we reduced it by 30,000 for this year, um, but we're still keeping it kind of high with the optimistic uh, hope that we will begin to have some more outings this year. And the gift fund balance is still well over $2 million. So um, we're, we're funded for this year and future years, um, future years of programming. So 
that's the overview. I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Ms. Conover. Um, uh, before we go into discussion, is there a motion to approve? Second. All right. Uh, any public comment? Is there anyone in the room who would like to make comment on this item? All right. Anyone online who would like to make uh, comment? I see no hands. All right. Commissioners, any comments or questions? Seeing none, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? All right. Group, thank you. Our next item is the behavioral health services update. We have Dr. Hillary Cunnins, who is our director of behavioral health to present. Welcome, Dr. Cunnins. Good to see you. Good evening, good afternoon. Uh, thanks for having me. Good to see you all. Um, Dr. Cunnins, just for you to know that the, the um, black a bar is the speaker, and if you could keep um, the pages away from that so that it will catch the sound of your voice. Thank you. I am deducing that that is the speaker just based on my, sorry about that. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm very, I'm very happy to be here. Um, members of the commission, Dr. Colfax, to give you an update on our recent activities in behavioral health. Next slide. Um, I'll spend uh, some time uh, on the following agenda items. I'll also thank you for your questions, commissioners. I'll try to integrate uh, into my presentations uh, some of the responses to your questions. I'll be first uh, sharing with you some updates around care court, as you have already heard a bit from Dr. Colfax, updates from our residential care and treatment efforts overdose response, and importantly, CalAIM and our uh, current preparation to transition to EPIC, our new electronic health record. Next slide. Next slide. Um, as you heard and, and likely all know, uh, CareCord is a new um, initiative from our governor created through legislation entitled SB 1338. As you also heard from Dr. Colfax, we in San Francisco are part of a first cohort of counties to implement care court uh, starting yesterday uh, with other counties, with LA to follow shortly and the remainder of, of counties in the coming year. The care court allows for a broad range of petitioners that include family members, providers, uh, or what is being called reference. This includes our assisted outpatient treatment program, conservatorship, misdemeanor diversion court to make a referral or a petition. If the person is deemed eligible and the person will not engage voluntarily in care, the participant will receive a court-ordered care plan for up to 12 months with the possibility of extending it for an additional 12 months. I think importantly, and to clarify for all of you, is that this uh, eligibility is for people with a psychotic disorder due to schizophrenia or other psychotic disorders. 
So for folks who might have what is called a substance use induced psychosis or a substance use disorder without a concomitant psychotic disorder would not be considered eligible for care court. It is intended to be a less restricted, restrictive alternative to other forms of court engaged or court mandated treatment. It is intended to be less restrictive, for example, than conservatorship. The governor and the state have proposed this to be a way to engage folks early and prevent further uh, development of crisis or further complications from the illness. We still have uncertainty about the number of people who will end up being referred into the care court program. We have estimated based on epidemiologic and health services data that there may be between one and 2000 people eligible in San Francisco. They will all not, likely not all be referred um, and certainly not all at once. So uh, next slide. Sorry, I, uh, I got ahead of myself. As you heard, all, ca all California counties will be participating in a phased approach. LA will be coming online next month. The remainder of the counties are expected to begin implementation by December of 2024. We have been aiming to educate San Franciscans and community members. You can see that we've had three recent meetings, including a town hall on, in August. The San Francisco Superior Court held a town hall public meeting uh, in middle of September um, in which I participated. And this is not upcoming, but there was a board of supervisor hearing last week, uh, which also was obviously publicly accessible. Next slide. Um, next slide. I wanted to update you on our progress uh, under Mental Health SF and Proposition C about expanding uh, our range of residential care and treatment uh, in, San, in, in San Francisco and for San Franciscans. The bottom line is that we have an intended plan of opening 400 new residential care and treatment spots. As of now, we have opened 350, so we are closing in on the remaining um, obligations and working hard to get those open. You can see at the bottom right hand of the slide the categories of beds that are, we are still working through. Um, you asked a question about how full our beds are and some recent news about the beds. These are beds that are all staffed and available, just to clarify one of the questions. We also have published in other places that our bed vacancy or occupancy rate is about 85%, depending on bed type. There is variation across bed type. Best practice is not aiming for 100% occupancy, because then, of course, when somebody needs a bed, it's full or a particular service. Some of our services are fuller than others. Some of them are specifically held for very specific populations. So sometimes dip lower, for example, perinatal care. Um, additionally, um, 
there, there was a, uh, some press and some public attention last week or the week before where uh, in the setting of one of our programs, a withdrawal management program, uh, folks coming in were not always admitted. That then got conflated to mean, oh, that's what we're doing across our entire system, which is incorrect. Further, this is a relatively new program and are finding that folks presenting for care at that level of withdrawal management may not always be appropriate either because they are too sick. I'm going to use air quotes there, but maybe have medical complexity, other psychiatric complexity that makes them appropriate for a different level of care, which they are then referred onto and linked to very closely. Some folks present for care, but decline to stay for an assessment and don't end up getting admitted when, when they are presenting for care. So I just want to kind of mention that as um, a, a, a data point, an incorrect data point that got circulated very widely uh, on the basis of some information we had shared with the Board of Supervisors and just want to correct it for all of you. Um, on the next slide, let me turn us over uh, to changing topics to overdose. Next slide. Um, as I think probably all of you are aware, overdose deaths are increasing in San Francisco in 2023 compared to 2022. We did see a flattening of overdose deaths from 2021 to 2022. And unfortunately, we are seeing an increase. There are 500 and 63 preliminary overdose deaths in San Francisco from January to August 2023. This is about 40% higher than that period last year. So this is quite serious, and this represents an increase on top of what is already an epidemic of overdose deaths. The majority of these deaths involve fentanyl, something like 80% of them. Fentanyl, as you know, is a potent opioid that is being either mixed into the drug supply, both locally and nationally, or drugs are being sold as fentanyl and being, are being sought after by folks with substance use disorders. Like other jurisdictions, we are aiming to address this very serious epidemic and I wanted to share with you some of the things we have been able to accomplish, certainly since part, some since we last met and some over the last year. Next slide. Um, I wanted to share with you some of the progress we have made in strengthening our continuum of what I'll call interventions. These are both clinical interventions happening in treatment programs interventions happening in lower barrier settings or in primary care settings, and interventions happening on and around our streets in San Francisco. As part of our approach to increasing residential care and treatment through Mental Health SF, we have opened a significant number of beds that really address specifically substance use disorder. One of them is our 70 residential step-down beds. 
These are beds also known as recovery beds or sober housing. They are intended for folks coming out of residential treatment. They can stay here for up to 24 months, receiving outpatient or attending outpatient treatment while having a safe place to stay. We are expanding something called contingency management um, with four programs in our substance use disorder treatment programs. Contingency management is our interventions where people are given an incentive for a particular healthy behavior. This is the most effective treatment we have for people with stimulant use disorder. Under CalAIM, under Medi-Cal reform in California, we are able to use Medi-Cal dollars uh, in a pilot fashion to fund these programs, which have been historically excluded from Medi-Cal. Additionally, and you can see the next three checks, we are working aggressively to expand hours of service in our pharmacy, in our behavioral health access center, uh, in some of our methadone maintenance programs. We are really looking to create models where this is not just business hours, but evening and weekend hours. We, as you have heard from my colleagues, um, Maria X. Martinez, which has opened, is partly and importantly serving people at risk of overdose. And we are working closely across the department to incorporate treatment and risk reduction services there, like distribution of naloxone. You also all have heard about our uh, specific post non-fatal overdose response team, SORT and POET, that are particularly geared for people experiencing homelessness. We have a complementary program for follow-up for people who are housed. We are aiming to reach people after a non-fatal overdose because they are at elevated risk for a subsequent overdose and specifically fatal overdose. Next slide. We also know that people at, um, at risk of overdose uh, may be socially isolated, uh, and may or may and may not have the skills to recognize or respond to overdose. In this vein, we are work. We worked to uh, open a drop-in space with low barrier therapy for people experiencing homelessness to reduce their risk of overdose. On the overdose and education front, we are working aggressively to saturate communities with avail information and availability of naloxone. You can see, and I know you've read the slides, the various ways in which we have done that. Um, I will just highlight, and it's not on here, um, is we have a um, overdose response training uh, to learn how to recognize overdose and respond with naloxone. And it's on the next slide, so I'll turn to the next slide. I'm jumping ahead. Um, we have had an overdose recognition response training, which has been taken by more than 5,000 times, including by staff from 12 different departments. We are really aiming to take a whole city approach and work with our colleagues in multiple city departments in order to reach people at risk and give people the skills to respond. Um, next slide. 
You heard from Dr. Colfax that we recently launched a dashboard to be able to track both what is happening in terms of overdose deaths, mortality, non-fatal overdoses, morbidity, and to understand the extent to which we are getting into the hands of people interventions that work such as naloxone and getting people into all forms and care that can reduce their risk. You can see an example of a screenshot in front of you. And we are working to disseminate these data through biweekly meetings with community members and frontline staffs so we can share our uh, targets and work together to improve upon them. Next slide. I want to turn now to two particular populations of focus in our overdose work. First, we know from our data that black African Americans are more than five times, have more than five times the rate of overdose deaths compared to other San Franciscans. We are working to establish more engagement and partnership with new community organizations and leaders in Black-led and predominantly Black-serving organizations around overdose prevention and access to treatment. You can see um, some of the partners we have working with very closely. We have connected with a total of 25 different Black-led or Black-serving organizations. We have trained more than 180 people in overdose prevention. We're also working deliberately across our own organization um, that, that actually should be Office of Health Equity, as well as within behavioral health, our Office of Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. And we really are aiming to make this a whole department and all of BHS uh, uh, effort. Next slide. Another population that we know is at elevated risk are folks um, who might be living in supportive housing. Folks in supportive housing, uh, through some uh, analyses, have been also found to carry an elevated risk of overdose. We are working closely with our fellow departments, Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, as well as a not-for-profit provider group, San Francisco Supportive Housing Network, to increase communication and coordination of overdose prevention at housing sites. Together, we have installed more than 100 emergency overdose response cabinets. You can see that depicted in front of you. We are working to train supportive housing residents and staff in overdose recognition and response. And another innovative and important program has been our ability to deliver buprenorphine, the medication to treat opioid use disorder, by our pharmacist now working with more than 80 residents across 25 housing sites. The idea here is bringing treatment to people to promote their adherence and retention in care, and of course, reduce their risk of overdose as well as promoting health overall. And finally, on the overdose front, next slide. We're happy to share that we were the recent awardee of a major uh, Centers for Disease Control grant on overdose. It's called Overdose to Action. 
We have been want, named as one of 40 jurisdictions nationally to receive the funding and the first time uh, in San Francisco. We will be using the funding uh, to increase navigation services citywide into treatment, improve data capture and analyses on drug-related metrics and trends, increase education of healthcare providers to increase prescribing of buprenorphine and other effective medications, and we'll be able to fund additional efforts to work specifically with the Black African-American communities and supportive housing. And then finally, just the last couple of slides. Next slide. Next slide. You have heard me speak about sort of some of the contextual things that are driving uh, change, urging change for us. One of them is Cal-AIM, which is, as you know, Medi-Cal reform. This has been a big year, starting from July, of implementing new billing codes. For those of you and us who have practiced clinically, you know that is no small feat. We are also finalizing new rates that for, for which we pay for service. Um, and. Um, and we are aiming to support providers through this really intense transition, which is changing the way we do documentation and care. We are strengthening also importantly, our collaboration with our um, uh, managed care plans at the San Francisco Health Plan, as well as Anthem Blue Cross. As you likely know, when somebody has a severe behavioral health issue, they come to us at, at DPH as a managed care plan and as a provider. If they have a mild to moderate behavioral health condition, they are cared for in the primary care context. We have implemented and are implementing a standard screening tool and aiming to improve transition of clients between the specialty behavioral health system and in this case, what we call the non-specialty, but the primary care or general medical system. This is really an amazing, important development as we really aim to integrate care across these systems. We also have an opportunity to, under CalAIM, to derive some uh, additional funding for what, what is being called community support. You can see this in the second to bottom green. One example is that SOMA Rise, our drug sobering center, one of the new efforts under Mental Health SF launched as a community or has begun uh, to be included as a community support program. This is really enabling us under the Medi-Cal program to deliver care that is broader than the na more narrow biomedical care, which is obviously can be extremely effective, but this allows us to address other needs that folks with severe behavioral health concerns have. And last slide, um, I want to just mention that we are hard at work preparing to join this, the rest of the network on the electronic health record called EPIC as you know. We are going to be launching uh, EPIC in May, um, just allowing us, rather than April, as you can see here, allowing us more time to finalize current processes. 
We are currently in what is called the groundwork and adoption phase, where we have subject matter experts from across behavioral health working closely with uh, our colleagues in IT and across from the department to be able to implement EPIC again, another really huge transition for the behavioral health system. We are happy to be able to sponsor some of our executive leaders to become experts in EPIC and to develop their own skills as they grow and help us lead into this next phase. This is really an enormous and important undertaking that in my view holds the promise of helping us work together to become a better one network system so that we can communicate about clients and patients and make sure we are coordinating and really driving to good outcomes in their care. Next slide, I think that is it. Happy to take questions. Thank you, Dr. Cunnins. Before we go into commissioner comments or questions, we will take public comment. Secretary Moritz. Sure, is there anyone? Uh, is there anyone in the room who would like to make public comment on this item? All right, seeing none, I see one hand. Um, Jaime, could you please um, unmute that person? Hi, caller, you've got um, three minutes. Please let us know that you're there. Hello, caller. Jaime, could you mute that person and unmute caller? the next caller? There's two hands up now. Right, caller. Are you Hi, there? I just, um, I would like a clear, uh, can you hear me? Yes, please begin. Hi, it's Dr. Palmer again. I just like a clearer idea of how close we are to treatment on demand. And um, can't we add um, tracking uh, about that uh, to the tracking on the overdoses? How do we know uh, when we've got sufficient services? Thank you. All right, thank you. Um, and Jaime, can you go back to the other caller and see if they're, they're there now? Hi, caller, are you Hi, there? Sorry. Hi, okay. yes, sorry. Um, I was calling in because um, in the last like nine months, I tried to reach out for services for my son in San Francisco. I tried to call the mobile helpline. I brought him into um, Sutter Health a couple of times and he was turned away. Um, by the time that mobile health crisis came out to help my son, he had already walked away. And so to me, also as a parent, um, trying, he has private insurance, trying to get an appointment with UCSF psychiatry or Sutter Health psychiatry was impossible. Literally a four month wait. Um, and to be, we first started off at General Hospital and he couldn't be seen at General Hospital because his insurance is not contracted with General Hospital. And so then I went into my network care and there, as you heard, there was more than a four month wait and a lot of things had happened in between that time. Um, I want to hear some realistic, I'm hearing about a one connective, um, one connective platform that you all are creating. And my son is very young still, so he should have been able to easily get help and um, access medical services. But I'm just letting you know it's not there. 
it's not there in the private. And when we try to access um, General Hospital or UCSF, they have a long waiting list. So I want there to be some honesty about accessing care and then giving families more. Um, when I brought him into the hospital, they wouldn't let me sit with him. They wouldn't let me give information at first. Um, I had to basically tell them I'm a hospital worker for them to start talking with me. Like there's things that can be done at the front end. And as a parent, I didn't feel like I had no support through all of this. Thank you. Thank you so much for your comments. That's the last public comment. Yes, thank you for, for, for those comments. Uh, commissioners, do we have comments or questions for Dr. Cunnins? Commissioner Guillermo. Thank you, uh, and thank you, Dr. Cunnins, for your presentation, uh, and um, I, again, for all of the work uh, that you and your staff do uh, on behalf of uh, San Franciscans in need. Um, my question has to do with um, the, the amount of contracting that we do with our partners outside of the actual network. Um, uh, I mean, for the whole range of services, right? From residential to prevention to all of that. Um, how are we assuring ourselves um, that there is um, sort of the measurable sort of outcomes that we're looking for? Because a lot of what you describe are great programs, uh, process points, um, expansion of services and, you know, those kinds of things. But how are we making sure that um, um, we're actually making a difference in the individual lives, particularly as it relates to uh, the, um, the vendors and the, the service providers that we have that are outside of our, our own immediate network. And particularly because we know how difficult it has been for them and, and us as well to hire, to, to recruit, attract, hire, train, and retain the kind of skilled staff that is needed for this expansion of services across the whole continuum. Uh, it, it's, it's not something I know that's easy to answer or even easy to measure, and hopefully through EPIC or some other you know, a, a data coordination work, we're going to be able to do that. But, but what is the thought on that? Because it's not, you know, I, I just, it's a question I think I ask often in terms of how are we going to be able to make sure that we're going to have an ongoing sustainable impact if we're not able to attract uh, the kinds of quality um, providers, clinicians, and such to stay uh, in, in the work? Um, uh, thanks. Thank you for the question, Commissioner Guillermo. Um, I think both parts of your question are really important. Um, one is workforce, and we um, are both uh, government and our contracted providers are challenged to recruit uh, enough behavioral health workers to fill all of our spots. This is a statewide problem and a national problem. I think there are a number of tactics that we are employing uh, to try to address this including within DPH and with our colleagues at Department of Human Resources, better, smoother, wider recruitment efforts, um, as well as uh, employing a number of our workforce development efforts, uh, which are largely funded by 
our state funding Mental Health Services Act. I agree, I think we all do, that more ideas and more uh, thinking to even expand further as we are expanding services. And without staff, sufficient staff, we have been challenged to expand hours as quickly as we would have liked. Um, on the second or your first part of your question, which is measuring outcomes for providers who are in contract with us. So the sort of um, one part, I want to just say that I think we are really looking forward to Epic in order to ease the kind of reporting and tracking we'll be able to do. We are, we, um, I know from my colleagues who have already implemented Epic that a lot of what they have been able to do through reporting is much um, less cumbersome than through current processes that we have. And so one of the great appeals of EPIC will be our ability to look at outcomes more easily. We are, in terms of measuring out outcomes by providers, we have um, a lot of oversight by the state this includes our, uh, and we just finished one last week, our something called EQRO, quality reporting. Part of that quality reporting, for example, is assessing in the case last week's audit, uh, whether our substance use services, what impact they have on our clients' substance use, as well as other health measures. And so this is part of the scrutiny that we receive, appropriate scrutiny from the state in addition to our own uh, reporting measures through our contracting processes about adhering to program goals and deliverables. I think there are always, I mean, I wanna just acknowledge opportunities for improvement. And I think in the field, as I have been in the field of behavioral health, getting to measuring outcomes in our services is kind of the, the work of the field that we've gotta do that better and more clearly and communicate it consistently. It is very different than measuring people's, for example, blood pressure control uh, or diabetes control, which is are measures that I was certainly very used to in primary care. I'm very committed through EPIC and through data to get us there. I would say we are working on it, and in some cases we do have it, and in other cases we have gaps. So if I can follow up then, um, it, and you know, I appreciate that, you know, lots of monitoring from both the state and other funding sources that we have. Do you see that uh, San Francisco may, or ha both can San Francisco and will San Francisco be able to establish its own sort of measurable uh, uh, goals or, or um, benchmarks around, because our, our situation is quite unique, right? Uh, and so I'm just wondering, rather than just um, complying or being accountable to our funding sources, how do we be accountable to ourselves? Uh, also a great question, and sorry if I didn't communicate, I'm realizing so clearly. I think we do and want to set our own benchmarks. I think we want to make them consistent with external expectations where possible. I think we and our dashboard on overdose is an example of this. Are we getting more people into treatment? Are we retaining to come more people in treatment? 
are we reaching the people who might be at risk of overdose with the kind of services that we know can be protective? None of those, I think, are exactly measured by the state by way of example, but we intend to measure them through this overdose dashboard as well as a still in development mental health uh, SF dashboard. Very welcoming of specific recommendations as well. Thank you. And that would apply also to the partners that we contract with? Yes. Okay. All right. I look forward to hearing more about that. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Guillermo. Vice President Green. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you so much for the progress that you and your team have made under your leadership. When you look at all the programs that have been put in place, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. This is such a complicated, difficult, probably the most difficult aspect of of public health we're dealing with now. And it's just, especially here in San Francisco with the overdose crisis and mental health crisis. And so we are really grateful to you and your team for all you've been able to accomplish. Um, I, I did have a question. This is more of a confusion on my part. Now that we, you know, we have the programs, we have CalAIM and we have um, a lot of wonderful ideas and, and I know staffing can be an issue, but I'm kind of confused about points of entry. Um, you know, the public comment about people who may be more disadvantaged by being insured than being uninsured, for example. But also, you know, one example that, that crossed my mind as you were speaking is, you know, for example, how does a relative who feels that um, one of their family members has schizophrenia and they may be homeless at this moment, how do we find them? And then who makes the diagnosis, especially in light of you know, staffing issues, so that we can get the, these individuals into programs? So I wonder if you can comment on points of entry, and in particular, which aspects of, of this myriad, these myriad programs do you think will be most accessible, both accessible and successful in enrollment? Um, let, let me also acknowledge that we do take a lot of um, calls and work with families and, and, and are families who have private or commercial insurance are, uh, do need to go through their commercial insurance program. And we are aware of wait lists and some challenges there. We also, however, work with families helping to get them situated Make, whether it's making a diagnosis or coordinating care, a few routes in. One is our behavioral health access line, or BHAL, and our behavioral health access center, or BHAC. The behavioral health access line is available for families to speak with, to receive referrals. Similar, our behavioral health access center can do the same. If somebody um, once enters into either of those pathways is looking for more help and referrals, or for example, the example you gave is experiencing homelessness, we have a, a recent, uh, relatively new in the last year and a half to year, our Office of Coordinated Care for people with complex behavioral health needs who might need either uh, linkage into ongoing care, helping to figure out where's the right level of care or what the right referral is, those teams are also available to help. The main for the public from, um, would be through BHAC, Behavioral Health Access Center at 1380 Howard, 
and the BHAL, the Behavioral Health Access Line, available 24-7. And can you also comment on um, what kind of opportunity we might have as, as there, there's been a few more arrests in terms of open drug use, and also what lessons we may have learned from our Tenderloin Licking Center in terms of that particular population helping them um, enter the system for care? Um, so I'll just comment on... Um, a citywide initiative called DMAC or the Drug Markets Initiative, where uh, folks might be arrested for public drug use and are under law allowed to be held for about four hours. As part of that, pro that law enforcement led program, everyone uh, is offered by the Sheriff's Department, uh, offered referral to treatment or to services. And in that neighborhood, of course, is our, as I just mentioned, our Behavioral Health Access Center, which is open now seven days a week, including into the evening hours. Um, I think one of the things that we have learned from the Tenderloin Center, as well as our other street care work, is that folks really, their top request is from us of, or of the city's shelter and having material needs met. And so even when folks clearly have a behavioral health challenge, it may not be in that moment that they are seeking treatment for their behavioral health concern. And so I think one of the learnings here and sort of what has been helpful for me to think about as an addiction medicine doctor is thinking about a person's sort of stages of change and so for the person who clearly has a problem, they might not be ready to work with us around changing their substance use, for example. The language is pre-contemplative. So for folks who are pre-contemplative, what we, some of our learnings is what can we offer based on what they're asking for? How do we deliver that? not only to deliver what they want, but also as an engagement strategy to keep them engaged and coming back to talk to us. I think this is very much what we are aiming to do with our street teams, which I did not so much talk about today, working very closely with our colleagues from um, Homelessness and Supportive Housing, their hot teams, to really coordinate across what we're doing on the street, being ready to get people into care, into treatment, whenever they ask, and that is our goal, as well as to coordinate with other agencies who ha might have other services at their disposal. Well, thank, thank you so much for this really wonderful work. And it's really heartening to know that, in fact, we do have services available, especially for the people uh, with greatest need um, in, in especially the overdose crisis. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Kunz. I really wanted to thank and commend you and your team for, for your excellent work. You know, seeing the dashboard of code, of course, is very concerning with the increase in the number of overdose deaths, every one of which represents a life and a family member and a member of the community. Um, it's so important to, for, you know, transparency and, and really uh, getting to the heart of what's happening. And the data, of course, is the basis for formulating our response. Um, and of course, this is all happening within the context, sort of against the current of new substances entering the markets, whether it's uh, xylazine or, or fentanyl and other things. There are all different kinds of 
you know, data that we see out there that reveals some surprising trends. Like if someone's supply is disrupted, sometimes that can lead to a greater uh, risk of, of overdose. Is there anything that we've learned from our data that perhaps has been surprising that has helped guide our response? And are there gaps in that data that would be helpful in uh, formulating our response? Um, that's a great question. Thank yeah. you. Um, I think we are looking, uh, so are there gaps in our data? I would say yes. And we, one thing that the dashboard has allowed us to do is really focus on what we do have mm -hmm. the positives and really look for ways we can strengthen our, our ability to know what's going on. We are working, uh, for example, with colleagues in fire department to, and, and they, and to support us to get more real-time non-fatal overdose data, anticipating that if we see upticks in non-fatal overdose, either geographically or in time, that we will be able to respond in a more targeted fashion, for example. We know that we um, need more uh, and intending to look for patterns, whether it's in geographic patterns or across social networks. So these are the ways in which data can help us respond in a more targeted fashion. I think what is um, preoccupying the sort of the field and all of us is being able to detect emergence of new substances. Um, this is something that we, as you mentioned, someone mentioned xylazine, which we know has entered the markets in the East Coast, thanks to our colleagues in the Office of Chief Medical Examiner. We are aware that xylazine has been present in some, in some folks who have passed from overdose, but in, in to date, few cases, but we are nonetheless able to be more vigilant about it. So I would say an answer to the surprise is that we are not seeing yet xylazine as a more prevalent substance in our, in our community. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioners, other questions or comments? Oh, yes, Commissioner Chung. Thank you again, Dr. Kunis, for the presentations. What strikes me is actually one of the slides that um, that correlates opioid overdose um, to post-incarcerations. And, you know, like one of the higher risk factor, it says here, received in-person mental health and substance abuse treatment. So that would actually increase the, the risk of overdosing. Like, do, do we know why? Um, I'm just looking for your exact sentence. Oh, um, and, oh that's the... And let, let slide me... Slide 21. Sorry? Slide 21. Oh, I think those were it, some it extra slides. may have been revised since it was sent to us, but... What, what is known about overdose risk is that um, a person who is being discharged from a correctional setting, jail or prison, is at elevated risk of overdose compared to other folks who have been stayed in the community. We, um, and the reason for this is that um, when folks are in a situation where they have not used any opioids, perhaps not voluntarily, their tolerance for their substance, which is a physical thing, goes down. And so even a little use can be um, 
they can be at higher risk for overdose than had they, in fact, not stopped using. This is a conundrum. I mean, this is uh, a challenge for all of us. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, uh, for, for us in the field, one thing that San Francisco has been doing uh, extremely well in is that we offer medication treatment voluntarily to people who are incarcerated in a San Francisco jail. And that is likely to protect them from having an increased risk of overdose following their, their um, release from, from incarceration. But that is a known phenomenon. It is also true that sometimes paradoxically detox can increase risk of overdose. Somebody stops using all opioids altogether. If they have a slip or a relapse, it is, they're more vulnerable to overdose than had their use continued. This is particularly worrisome in the context of fentanyl, where a small slip or return to drug use can be very dangerous and even fatal. And so that's kind of the longish, thank you for the assist uh, explanation there. Thank you. And uh, Commissioner, if I may, that slide, if, I, if I'm correct, because I gave my copy to Dr. Cunnins, it's a North Carolina study, so it's not our, our jails with our phenomenal oh. care. Oh, yeah. So it, that's really important to know, because I know from experience that our, our, the quality in the jails is uh, it's very good. Yes, and yeah, and, and but that, those numbers were pretty yes. alarming to me. <laughs> and, and these data are from, thank you for that, Mark, are from North Carolina data. There's also data from other places around the country, and, and I don't believe that there are local data to that effect, just to clarify again. And then just also to put a, a finer point on it, that in San Francisco, we do offer treatment in naloxone in jail, where many jails across the country do not. So most, uh, we are uh, a leader in this in San Francisco, thanks to my colleagues in jail health. And we are very much, unfortunately, the exception still. And as well as work to do linkages through the sheriff's office upon release. Yes. Yes. All right. Thank you. All right, commissioners, other questions or comments? Dr. Cunnins, thank you so much for, for bringing this comprehensive and excellent presentation to us. We know there are a lot of challenges and are grateful for you and your team's work to, to address them. And uh, we look forward to hearing more. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Our next item is the Vision Zero update. And for the presentation we have, is it uh, Ms. Sue, is that right? Thank you. Uh, as well as uh, Jamie Parks. Uh, so uh, welcome and the, the floor is yours. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Iris Sue, and I'm the lead epidemiologist for Vision Zero. Uh, my position is organized in the DPH Center for Data Science within the Population Health Division. I'm going to be presenting key findings of our 2022 annual traffic fatality report, as well as give a brief overview of our major 2023 data science initiatives. The data for this report is provided by collaboration between the core Vision Zero team, including ourselves at SFDPH, SFMTA and the San Francisco Police Department. Additional system-wide support is provided by the Office of the Medical Examiner and the BHS Crisis Team. Next slide. 
In 2014, San Francisco adopted Vision Zero as a citywide policy to end traffic-related deaths. At its heart, the broad mission is that our streets should be safe, no matter where we go or how we get there. It's a citywide effort with a citywide impact. The Vision Zero concept originated in Sweden in 1997, when the Swedish parliament adopted it as the official road policy. At Vision Zero's core is the ethical principle that is that it is unacceptable for people to be killed or seriously injured when moving within the transportation system. The people that design, maintain, operate, and use the roadway network share a responsibility for safety to ensure that mistakes do not result in serious injuries or death. Vision Zero came to the U.S. in 2000 with Washington State adopting its Target Zero plan. Vision Zero is now an adopted policy in over 50 U.S. municipalities. Here in San Francisco, a number of city agencies collaborate on the Vision Zero initiative. SFMTA's goal is to create a culture that prioritizes traffic safety and to ensure that mistakes on our roadways don't result in severe injuries or death. SFDPH, through Population Health Division's Center for Data Science, analyzes and transforms available data into practical, relevant, accessible, and timely products that generate novel insights and improve operational decision-making towards SFMTA's goals. The SF Police Department and Office of the Medical Examiner ensure we receive notification of traffic-related fatalities in a timely manner. And the DPH Behavioral Crisis Team provides community or family support when needed. Next slide. One of the products produced by the Center for Data Science is the Vision Zero High Injury Network. Traffic casualties are inextricably linked to their location, and the Vision Zero High Injury Network, or VZHIN, identifies the corridors where the most severe and fatal injuries in San Francisco are concentrated. DPH released an updated network in November 2022. A majority of 2022 fatalities are represented on the high injury network, um, including 59% of total fatalities for that year. In addition, we overlaid fatalities with MTC's equity priority communities and found that 44% of fatalities occurred in those communities. The 2022 trends are consistent with the trends presented last year for the 2021 calendar year. Next slide, please. Between 1990 and 2006, injury crashes decreased, then plateaued between 2006 and 2014 when Vision Zero was adopted. Beginning in 2015, injury crashes began increasing until the COVID shelter-in-place orders went into effect. Each year, San Francisco records on average about 30 fatalities and approximately 500 severe injuries on our city streets. Next slide. Comparably, between 2005 and 2014, fatalities were also relatively stable, around 30 deaths annually, with one exception in 2007. 2022 saw the most traffic fatalities on our streets since 2007. Compared to last year, pedestrians experienced a 54% increase in fatalities, and there was a 50% increase in the number of people killed in motor vehicles. Overall, across transportation modes, pedestrians are consistently the most vulnerable road users in San Francisco and account for a majority of all fatalities in 2022. Motor vehicles, such as cars and trucks, record the second highest proportion of fatalities by mode and represented a higher proportion of fatalities 
in this mode than in the past several years. Next slide. Since 2014, while we have observed a general downward trend of pedestrian fatalities on our streets, we saw one of the highest pedestrian fatality counts in 2022. We also saw double the number of motor vehicle fatalities compared to 2021. Similar, similar increased fatality trends by mode were observed among e-scooter riders. While one person was killed while riding a bicycle in 2022, we are seeing a sustained reduction in the number of cyclists killed on our streets since 2014. When we explored fatalities by age, in 2022, traffic fatalities were overrepresented among people aged 45 and older relative to their demographic representation in the city. In particular, San Francisco has seen a steady increase in fatalities among persons aged 65 plus over the past three years. 2022 data revealed inequities for traffic fatalities by race ethnicity. Black and white travelers were disproportionately overrepresented in the fatality data. Each group had more fatalities compared to their representation in the city population. In contrast, Asian and Latino travelers were underrepresented compared to their representation in the total SF population. And for more information on fatalities by demographic strata, please refer to the most recently released fatality report that's included with the materials for today's presentation. Next slide. We compared San Francisco's fatality trends with those of other California cities and nationally. Los Angeles, San Diego, and San Jose adopted Vision Zero around the same time as San Francisco. Oakland has not officially adopted Vision Zero, and Long Beach has not officially adopted Vision Zero, though has had a safe streets plan since 2020 that is modeled after Vision Zero. An asterisk on this slide denotes Vision Zero adoption. Compared to 2019, traffic fatalities increased across the nation. Many cities experienced their highest fatality counts on record during the pandemic and have remained at elevated rates in 2022. This was true in jurisdictions that participate in Vision Zero as well as those that don't. Next slide, please. We conducted a preliminary analysis on the effects of quick build projects on collisions, severe injuries, and fatalities. Quick builds are currently installed on around 4% of all San Francisco street segments. In 2019, less than 1% of fatalities or serious injuries were on quick build street segments. In 2020, that proportion rose to 7%. In 2021 and 22, it was 12 and 11% respectively. Next slide, please. Quick builds as an intervention were first completed related to Vision Zero starting in 2018. We analyzed Vision Zero traffic collision outcomes on only those street segments that had a quick build installed in 2020. We then used 2020 as a reference year because it experienced an anomalous interruption of traffic due to the COVID-19 pandemic shelter-in-place orders. The 2020 Quick Build Network was primarily among, along Market Street, Sunset Boulevard, South Van Ness, Franklin Street, Mission and Geneva in the Excelsior District, and Keith Street in Bayview Hunters Point. We compared 2019 collision outcomes on those street segments with 2021 collisions to estimate the difference and impact of the Quick Build projects. 
Next slide, please. Following quick build completion in 2020, a paired sample analysis revealed significantly fewer total collisions and significantly fewer injuries overall. And while we also saw a descriptive, we also saw descriptive decreases in the total number of persons severely injured, these differences were not significant, statistically significant. The total number of fatalities remained constant at seven in 2019 compared to 2021. Next slide. Another notable finding was that the quick build interventions reduced bicycle and pedestrian related collisions by over 30%. These findings align with the collision reductions outlined in the Vision Zero Action Strategy. Next slide. Our next major project is a collaboration with Data SF to produce a predictive model for collisions, fatalities, and severe injuries. Our hope is to combine data from multiple sources to analyze the likelihood of negative outcomes at various intersections and street segments in San Francisco. To prepare for this work, the Center for Data Science is working with our information systems partners to modernize and centralize our traffic data workflows and systems for more efficient and robust analytics. Thank you very much for this opportunity to share the findings. I wish to give a big thank you to Devin Morris, who now works with the San Francisco Police Department, as his work has deeply informed the data presented here. And I'm now going to hand off the mic to my colleague, Jamie Parks from SFMTA. Uh, thank you, Iris, and thank you, Commissioners, for having me. I'm Jamie Parks. I oversee the Livable Streets Division at SFMTA, which includes both our Vision Zero policy programs, as well as implementing a lot of the street safety changes that you see around San Francisco. So, so I want to start by acknowledging the partnership that we have with DPH on Vision Zero. Uh, we've, DPH has been a core partner since we've adopted Vision Zero in 2014, and I've really appreciated working with Iris and, and Seth. And one of the major uh, work products from our, from our Vision Zero work is the Vision Zero Action Strategy, which, which was adopted and produced by the, released by the San Francisco Mayor's Office in 2021. And a core to core piece of the action strategy is the idea that Vision Zero requires a safe systems approach. There's no single silver bullet that's going to get us to zero deaths. In fact, we're running a combination of approaches that intervene in the system at multiple points along the way before a fatal crash occurs. This donut chart that's here, that's displayed here, comes from the action strategy. I want to pause here a little bit to talk about some of the different components that we see as part of the safe systems approach. Uh, the, the percentage estimates here are just approximate, but they do come from national research that, that we looked into as we were developing the action strategy. So the, the five main pieces, that, the five main components of getting to zero, one is we need to redesign our streets, and we can see about a 30% reduction in, in crashes when we redesign our streets appropriately. And that's actually consistent with what Iris just presented in terms of what we've actually seen when we've installed quick build improvements on San Francisco streets. But we need to know a lot more than that as well. 30% leaves 70% of crashes untouched. Other key components are slowing down speeds. I'll talk a little bit about our uh, work on speed safety cameras in a minute. Uh, we also need fewer people driving cars, and so we need to have a mode shift to more sustainable modes of transportation and safer modes of transportation, whether it's transit, walking, and biking. Um, 
vehicles themselves that are on our roads need to be safe. And so whether that's looking at how autumn, you know, autonomous vehicles are regulated, or also just the fact that vehicles on our streets are getting bigger and faster every year and more deadly, um, those, those types of big policy changes are a key part of this. And then finally, housing. Um, I think we, we know that you know, living on the street, being unhoused is fundamentally unsafe. And one of the ways in which it's unsafe and puts you at risk is you're at much higher risk of traffic crashes and fatalities. And we see a lot of people experiencing homelessness um, are part, showing up in, in our data as well. And you know, that's, that's a fundamental, it's one of many reasons why San Francisco needs to address our housing and homelessness crisis. Moves on. How do I? Oh, okay. oh, next slide. Amazing. All right. Okay. So I'm going to focus specifically on some of the more more of the street design treatments that we at MTA focus on, which is that that 30% of safe street designs. The principles that we use are. See. If I say next slide, is it advanced? Does it give me new bullets also? If there's like, all right, cool. All right, nice. Okay, so first, we know the vehicles are moving too fast. Speeding is the number one cause of injuries and fatal crashes on our streets. We need people to slow down, and we have tools to help slow them down with the way that we design our streets. Um, next. And as Iris just described in the fatality report, pedestrians are overrepresented in our, in our data. We know that they're the most vulnerable people on our streets, particularly our, our seniors and people with disabilities. And we can protect them at the places where they're most likely to come into conflict with vehicles, which is at intersections. Next, um, when we talk about mode shift, we know that you know, a lot of people feel unsafe biking or you know, scooting or, you know, using, using non-motorized transportation to get around San Francisco. And one of the ways that we can address that is by providing protected bike lanes and slow streets and other safe facilities for them to use. And next, and finally, um, we, we also know that there's a whole range of non-infrastructure related human behavior that goes into the, the outcomes on the streets and the crashes that we see. We, as part of street, as part of street designers, we cannot control all of that, um, but we can mitigate some of the issues. We know a lot of what's what's happening. If we are doing the things that are up above on this slide in terms of slowing vehicles down and providing protection, and making sure that you know different users are visible to each other, uh, we can help address some of the human behavior issues that we see as well. Next slide. So. I'll go through these pieces pretty quickly, but we have a lot of different uh, programs that we use that, that we're always implementing for slowing down vehicles. Uh, traffic calming, uh, we install speed humps, raised crosswalks all around the city. Uh, we're committed to installing at least 100 per year as part of our action strategy. We received legislation from the state new authority to install 20 mile an hour speed limits in certain areas where we expect high pedestrian volumes. Uh, prior to 2021, that was not allowed in California. Starting in 2022, we we're allowed to install 20 mile an hour zones in business districts. And if you're, if you, you'll see that we've installed about 50, um, 50 business districts in San Francisco have gotten the 20 mile an hour signs since the bill went into effect and we have more coming next year. 
Um, we also have a number of uh, just specific spot improvements or like restriping changes that we can do on the street to slow vehicles down. A highlight here, uh, and it's pending, pending Governor Newsom's signature, Assembly Bill 645 to authorize speed safety cameras in California has passed the Assembly and the State Senate, uh, and that would allow for up to 33 automated speed cameras in, deployed in San Francisco under a five-year pilot. This is a bill that's been at the forefront of um, San Francisco's Vision Zero state legislative, state legislative uh, push for the last five years. We're extremely excited to see it get this close. We're hopeful that in the next week, the governor signs it and you know, we'll be starting a planning process uh, this fall to implement speed safety cameras as soon as possible. Uh, next slide. We'll talk a little bit here about our street design tools to protect pedestrians. One of the programs that we developed around four or five years ago when we saw that you know, full street reconfigurations and street redesigns were taking too long to implement was we created a, what we call a quick build program in 2019. And some of the data that uh, was just presented by Iris earlier showed that you know, the, the quick build projects that we deliver are providing real benefits in terms of reducing injuries. So we're doubling down on that program. We have 17 additional quick build corridors that, are, that have already been funded, that are in process right now, and we're moving through the design and construction as fast as we can. We also have a commitment uh, to install what we're calling the quick build toolkit, so core pedestrian safety tools on every, at a, every single intersection along our Heinzry network by the end of 2024. And so those are tools like, you know, making sure that you have daylighting so that, you know, people driving and people crossing the street can see each other, uh, that the signal timing is appropriate, that the crosswalks are all painted. Um, so that toolkit work is going to be a huge amount of what we're focusing on between now and the end of 2024. Um, other, other notable programs for protecting pedestrians, we do quite a bit of work around school safety. So we have walk audits and work very closely with our SFUSD colleagues and, and school colleagues. And then we have targeted programs just at, at intersections, especially around turns. Uh, we know that left turns are the most dangerous turn that can be made. They're a cause of a lot of crashes. And so we've been working a lot on how we can, recognizing that at some point in life, most people are gonna have to turn left. How can we make that happen as safely as possible? Next slide and next slide. And then finally, in terms of the programs that we're that we are working on, is a focus on mode shift and specifically making it safer and more comfortable for people to choose biking and and uh, rolling to get around San Francisco. We have been working um, over the last several years to expand our bike network. We now have almost 50 miles of protected bike lanes in San Francisco, up from approximately five miles five years ago. That network has rolled out very quickly, especially in the downtown core and around SOMA. Uh, during COVID, we developed a slow streets network um, serving residential neighborhoods around San Francisco, starting out as a way to provide social distancing, but morphing into a program that uh, really allows safe and comfortable connections for um, families throughout, you know, across San Francisco neighborhoods. Next slide. And Finally, what we're, we are working on right now is what we're calling an active communities plan. 
The bicycle plan for San Francisco has not been updated since 2009. This will be an update to that plan that we expect to bring to our SFMTA board in the spring of 2024 for adoption. And that will be the next generation of how we roll out safe uh, biking and rolling infrastructure across San Francisco, building on what we've learned the, the past few years. Next slide. So I'm going to, I'll close by just noting that while we have made a huge amount of progress and done a huge amount of work since 2014, um, the hard truth is that we've, we have learned a lot of lessons along the way and achieving Vision Zero is not going to be a 10-year commitment. It's more like a multi-decade commitment and it's work that is necessary and we are committed to it. And you know, we're doing everything we can between now and the end of 2024 and we're committed to continuing the work as long as it takes to get there. But we have learned a lot of important lessons along the way, a few highlighted here. We started off thinking that we could have, we would have the money and the resources and the time to more or less rebuild every street in San Francisco on the Hindu network. Uh, that simply hasn't come to pass. Uh, it's far too expensive, far too time consuming. Where we have the resources, we want to do that. Like we're doing on 6th Street right now, Taylor Street, we're widening sidewalks. But the quick build toolkit, uh, we're really focusing on rolling that out as quickly as we can. Um, when we adopted Vision Zero, we really thought that speed safety cameras would be up and running and fully deployed citywide by now. As it turns out, it took us this long just to get the, the legislative authority and for 99% of the way to getting legislative authority. It's taken a lot longer. We're still ready to hit the ground running as soon as we can. Um, and we've also learned just a little, a lot more about how, how challenging it is to influence mode shift and also how difficult it is to use kind of traditional police enforcement to achieve the outcomes on the streets that we want. There are a lot of challenges with traditional police enforcement in terms of equity impacts. And then also, frankly, the police department doesn't have resources to do traffic enforcement right now either. And so we're really looking at alternatives to traditional traffic enforcement to get the desired behavior. Um, so next slide. I think that is, so that is everything that I wanted to share. I think um, Iris and I are happy to, to take questions and we appreciate you having us. Thank you, Ms. Sue, Mr. Parks. Uh, do we have any public comment? We do. You have uh, somebody oh, in the yes, room. Oh, yes, I do. Thank you very and, much. And actually, if anybody else in the room would like to make public comment, you can um, go after the speaker or you can give me a card, but um, Commissioner Bernal will read that person's name. All right, very exciting. We have in-person public comment. Lian Chang, welcome. And I've got a timer with three minutes. When the buzzer goes off, please know that your time is up. Thank you so much. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Leanne Chang, and I focus on Vision Zero planning at Walk San Francisco. Um, thank you to Iris Sui and Jamie Parks for your presentation, and thank you, commissioners, for making time to discuss Vision Zero. It couldn't be coming at a more needed time. Pedestrians are dying from traffic-related crashes at alarming and unacceptable rates. Last year, 39 traffic-related deaths and um, and uh, occurred, and more than half were pedestrians just trying to cross the street. This year, we've lost a four-year-old child as well as 13 adults already. This is a public health crisis, and the city agencies must be doing everything as possible to end these preventable injuries and fatalities. Today's presentation shows that quick builds are effective in reducing bike and pedestrian-related collisions by about a third. This is a step in the right direction. Quick builds are meant to be quick and inexpensive, and they're incorporating basic safety infrastructure that should be in place as soon as possible. 
WACSF is actually also at an SFMT meeting hearing that, ju that just finished uh, a few minutes ago, encouraging the SFMTA to double down um, on a plan that they have to complete quick builds on 900 high injury in, uh, uh, intersections by December 2024. So these are 900 intersections that are on the high injury network that have yet to receive any safety improvements. This is low hanging fruit that the, the MTA is already committed to and that just needs a clear and achievable plan to get back on track towards their deadline of December 2024. So we want to thank and encourage the city for uh, city agencies um, and continuing to work together to bring quick builds and other needed life saving changes, as well as analytics, analytics projects using limited resources wisely in order to make our streets safe for all of us moving around San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Chang. And I see, uh, there are no remote public comment requests, so that is the only comment for this item. Comments or questions, commissioners? I, oh, so well, I'll, I'll go first and I'll, we'll, we'll go to Vice President Green. Um, so uh, I am a cyclist and I cycle at times around the city and I know that I've observed that sometimes there are different kinds of bike lanes that are put in place, specifically Valencia between, I think, 16th and 18th, which is near where I live. I'm wondering, what's the process for determining the kind? I know there must be a lot of research and testing and other things, but what's the process in San Francisco when a new type of intervention, like a different kind of bike lane is put in place for receiving feedback, collecting data, determining what's most effective in preventing injuries and, and um, other issues, fatalities in particular? That is an excellent question. I'll note that I think the design of bicycle infrastructure is one of the fastest evolving components of kind of transportation engineering and design. The, over the last 10 years, the way the bicycle facilities look, not just in San Francisco, but across the country has shifted dramatically. And, and so we've tried to keep pace with that and also do it in a thoughtful way. Uh, the main tools that we have are, one is we've learned that protected bike lanes, which are protected with some sort of physical barrier between the cyclists and cars, whether it's posts or curbs or a parked vehicle, that that physical separation is really critical, not only to safety, uh, but also to the comfort of, of people riding. And so you'll see fewer and fewer new just painted bike lanes in San Francisco and a bigger emphasis on protected bike lanes. And then the second main tool that we've used is um, really slow streets. I think what we've learned is that, you know, you don't need a protected bike lane necessarily on a low speed, low volume residential street. What you need is traffic calming and signs to make sure that everybody is going slowly and sharing the road appropriately. And so those are our two main tools, but there's a lot of nuance within that. And one thing I would like to highlight is that we've, we've been very fortunate to have the resources to have a an evaluation program. So we have a safe streets evaluation program. So every time we implement a project, we have an evaluation plan and we collect before and after data to see how it's working. And so that's not only data on say, were there fewer people, were there more people biking or were there fewer crashes? We also collect video data on specific outcomes. So like close calls. And so, so close, close calls are a proxy for collisions. And so, you know, so we use video data to see every time you know a cyclist and a motor vehicle come within say less than a half a second of colliding, we can see that on on video data. So we do a lot of data collection and evaluation of the different projects. And Valencia is absolutely a pilot. Um, it's a very unique street. It's a very unique design. It's uh, far from certain that um, the Centroni Bikeway is the best design, but uh, we did feel after a number of years 
that we needed to, to move forward on Valencia and um, improve from the status quo. And we have an evaluation, a large evaluation program set up for that pilot with the first data available later this fall. All right, great, thank you. Vice President Green. Yes, well, first of all, thank you for this really clear and comprehensive presentation. And I think it's so impressive. We, you know, we talked earlier about using data to inform action plans and decisions. And I think you've not only done that, but you're clearly prioritizing, recognizing what you can change and having the wisdom to know what you can't. And so I think this is, this is really excellent work and we, we really appreciate it. I, I had um, two questions. One is, you know, it was in the news today, there was a person that was terribly injured and um, it wasn't the autonomous vehicle that caused the problem initially, but obviously was involved. I'm wondering, you know, there's so much out there in the news, you know, a lot of uh, very extreme opinions of autonomous vehicles. And of course, not every, whether they're here or not, is not within our control. But I'm wondering, first of all, when you'll get data that might help you understand how they fit into all of this. And, and also whether you have any projections of what that data might be. So that, that was my first question. And the second one, I, I was so impressed by what you said about 500 severe injuries. And I wonder how you're using severe injury data, which may be harder to obtain, um, to inform the choices and the priorities. Because does it really mirror where the fatalities have been? Or, or is there, uh, you know, more information that you can glean because that that's just so life altering and I'm, I'm curious to know how you incorporate that as well. Um, I will attempt to at least a partial answer at the autonomous vehicles and then turn it to Iris for the, the data question. First, I think we we are very data driven and so I don't want to speculate. I, I, I want to Make sure that we that that we that we wait and see what the data tells us, and we are you know, working to collect all the data that we possibly can on autonomous vehicles. And specific to the you know the incident yesterday, you know we have no information yet that really tells us what happened or what the what the roles were. Uh, but we are you know working with PD to get whatever information we can. So anyway, that's probably not very satisfying. But we'll we'll try to we'll we'll try to stay patient and data driven and react appropriately to to what we find out yeah with um emerging new types of severe injuries and fatalities similar to i would say how e-scooters have been increasing uh injuries and fatalities among e-scooter riders have been increasing in the past several years it takes a little while there's a, la a lag between the you know prevalence of these new technologies um to show up into our data so um, in terms of developing models for predicting those types of things without past data to really um, train <laughs> from, we can't really predict how they will impact the future. Um, in terms of the severe injury data, um, unlike fatalities, where it's pretty clear where the data sources are coming from and the com completeness of the data is relatively well documented, severe injuries um, are often underreported um, if we go by just the police reports, which is our main source of data. So there, that's why the past, um, since Vision Zero has been adopted, we've been trying to link records with the police reports, with the trauma registry at San Francisco General, and with 911 calls, ambulance uh, operator records, 
and um, and other other um, injury reports um, data sources. And so, in doing that, we were able to greatly expand the number of injuries that we can report on. And so, um, the next report for severe injuries will be due out next year, Q1 of next year. Well, thank you. Well, we'll look forward to the follow-up. I think it'll be really informative. Thank you very much. Commissioner Guillermo. Thank you. Thank you very much for your report. And I, I truly appreciate uh, sort of the scientific nature of uh, your approach to Vision Zero. Uh, and I, I think that that is, you know, being somebody that appreciates uh, everything data. I, I appreciate that. But I do have um, some questions related to sort of more a qualitative aspect uh, to transportation and safety issues in San Francisco. The city is a very dense city, dense with people, dense with traffic, dense with a lot of different things. So I'm just sort of wondering where that issue of density comes into play, not just in terms of the data, because I don't, I don't know how you collect that, um, relative to the things that you are trying to achieve in your goals. Um, but just as an example, in business areas in San Francisco, or even just in small neighborhoods, San Francisco is the city of neighborhoods, um, take Geary or Clement Street, for example, where you need to have deliveries and people coming into shop that aren't necessarily gonna be facilitated by a bike lane or even by Muni how, how does those things come into consideration as it relates to sort of the quality of life or the activities of daily living for a family, uh, mom who has to come pick up her kids, buy groceries, make a quick stop at the, you know, at the market, uh, there's no parking, uh, can't take the bus. Those are the kinds of things I think that don't necessarily come show up in the data uh, and they're not scientific in that sense. So how do you take those into consideration? I would say that the data really informs where we do projects and where we focus resources, but the qualitative aspects you just described inform how we do the projects once we get there. And so we may know that a street is on the Hydra network, but when it comes to the specific design treatments that we propose and whether we and, you know, propose a bike lane or propose re removing travel lanes or anything else, uh, we do go through a pretty in-depth you know, community process for our corridor projects and you know, talk to different stakeholders and figure out needs. And you look at a corridor like, um, like the center running bike lane on Valencia, we ended up with a quite unique and you know, different design there because of exactly what we heard from the merchant community, that what they needed was curbside loading and shared spaces that were critical to the survival of their businesses. And so when we do take a lot of pride in our, our projects not looking the same citywide and that we, we take into account what the, what the stakeholders and what the neighborhood tells us they need. I'm sure we don't always get it perfectly, uh, but there is, there is a process there to make sure that we're taking into account more than, more than uh, kind of a pure traffic engineering perspective. That that's helpful, and I do know that there is a you know community process of just curious on how that actually comes into play with the data uh, that you analyze, and it, it appears drives a lot of the decisions that you make. And so, just encouraging you know that type of sort of uh, inclusion 
uh, I guess, as we go into the future with all of these other projects that, you know, the quick builds and all of those kinds of things that um, are going to affect uh, uh, San Francisco, again, particularly because we're such a dense city that requires so many different way, modes um, of maneuvering uh, and facilitating just, as I said, daily life activities that are not just about the safety of pedestrians and drivers and such. Thank you. A quick comment about yeah. um, differentiated risk. <laughs> um, with traffic safety, you know, it would be amazing if we could provide some estimation of uh, a, the risk for a certain individual or type of individual. With the work that we have and the data that we do, um, we often look at things through the street segment and um, talk about environmental risks because street segments don't really change very much. Um, and in terms of the idea of an exposure, you know, the idea of an exposure depends on density, like you said. Um, and we don't have good metrics on how to capture those oftentimes. So, um, yeah, just <laughs> trying to um, give some insight about how we think about our quantitative aspects of our analysis. Great. Well, thank you for your presentation. Uh, we look forward to the next one. Oh, yes, oh, sorry, Director Thank you. Thank you. I just uh, wanted to uh, express appreciation for the work um, and in, including and especially the partnership uh, between the departments on this. I know one of the, you know, for us to improve health and wellness across the city, it often requires um, that the health department teams work across uh, different departments and for all sorts of bureaucratic um, uh, reasons that doesn't always happen as efficiently and effectively as it needs to do. And I'm just really, um, I, I just want to call out that uh, this has been a really important collaboration. And indeed, I would say is a model for cross-departmental uh, collaboration around an issue that uh, is important and part of both of the um, department's uh, uh, priorities. So thank you everyone for being such a great team, not only in the health department, but at Muni um, to make the city better for everyone. Yes, I concur with Director Colfax's remarks, so thank you very much. All right, our next item is a Finance and Planning Committee update. We have Commissioner Chung, the Chair of the Finance and Planning Committee, to provide that update, and there will be an associated item afterwards, which is an action item for a consent calendar. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Um, the um, Finance and Planning Committee met um, just before the um, Commission meetings, and we um, had... Um, review one contract report, oh, one, one contract report, and of which actually um, want to mention one of the contracts on the contract reports will be pulled from um, from the report, and it will be reintroduced again in November in our next finance and planning meeting. Um, and hold on one second. And um, and then there are two new contracts, you know, like um, one with uh, the um, uh, Mosimtech LLC, which is, you know, like a data 
um, company that um, that we use you know, to store um, our 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 health data, and um, and it's great to know that you know like they they have such a capacity now that um, that we were told. Um, the, um, that we no longer need to warehouse any of the documents, and it would be just sitting on that, um, you know, on the in the system, you know, so it would be easier to access any of these informations. Um, and the um, the other contract um, for for us to approve is a contract with Richmond Area Multi Services, and um, we heard the. Um, Dr. Cannons, um mentioned about like this street-based mental health um, interventions, and this contract is one of those um, street-based interventions. And it's a newer approach um, strategically, you know, in interventions, and um, and because it's it's quite interesting. It's so interesting enough that um, I had requested it to come back to the Population Health Committee next year after it get fully implemented for a year and see what the impact looks like. So we get a better sense of like what type of investment yields what type of results for lack of a better way to, to put it. And then um, we also spent some time to have some conversations around like how some of our contracts are getting pretty complex and big, big as in it's multi-contracts, you know, with the same agencies that we try to like make sure that we have enough mechanism, you know, to monitor them so that, you know, like we can catch any like red flags before they happen or provide the support they need so that, you know, like they can continue to provide like top-notch services to San, Franc San Franciscans. Um, that's it. Oh, and if uh, may I chime in, Commissioner? Just, I, 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 it might have been my middle age hearing, but I didn't hear the um, name of health advocates being pulled from the monitoring report. That's the name of the contract. That's oh, I was going to do that's that not going to be. Oh, I, I apologize. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Commissioner Chung. Any public comment? Uh, folks on the line, I don't see anyone in the room. Um, we uh, are on, what item are we on? We're on item nine. I don't see any hands, but in case you would like to make a public comment. All right, no hands, Commissioner. All right, moving on to our next item for action is the consent calendar. Um, and just again, to clarify that all matters listed under the, this constituted consent agenda are considered to be routine by the Health Commission and will be acted upon by a single roll call vote of the Health Commission. There'll be no separate discussion of these items unless a member of the commission requests discussion in which event the matter shall be removed from the consent agenda and considered as a separate agenda item. Back to uh, uh, Commissioner Chung, Chair of the Finance and Planning Committee. Thank you, President Bernal. And um, as I mentioned earlier that um, in, in the contract reports, originally there are six contracts and we are pulling um, the 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 last contracts on the contract report, which, which is with the Health Advocates LLC, um, and and reintroduce that in um, November, which is the next finance and planning uh, meeting. All right. So, do we have a motion to approve the consent calendar? Oh. Motion to approve. Second. 
Any public comment? Uh, I don't see any hands, folks. We are on item 10. Once, going twice, no hands. Commissioner, comments or questions? Seeing none, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? All right. The consent calendar passes unanimously. Uh, our next item is a discussion item, Joint Conference Committee and other committee reports. Our Secretary, Mark Morowitz, will give the update for the ZSFG Joint Conference Committee. Commissioner Guillermo um, generously joined the meeting on, on September 29th. It was uh, simply a open session to go into a closed session so the credentials report could be approved, which allowed um, staff at ZSFG to continue through the weekend. Um, there was issue with um, concern about um, folks losing their credentials if that report hadn't been approved. So, so thank you again, Commissioner Guillermo. Thank you, Secretary Morwitz, and thank you, Commissioner Guillermo, for all acting so quickly to ensure that there was continuity. Um, any public comment on this item? I see no hands. Any Commissioner comments or questions? Seeing none, we'll move on to other business. Any other business? Right. With no other business. And I don't see any public comment on uh, any hands up for this item. Okay, then we can entertain a motion to adjourn. So moved. Second. All right. Any public comment? I see, oh, there's no public comment on adjournment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with no comments or questions from commissioners, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? All right. We are adjourned. Thank you. Thanks, SFCUP TV. TV. San Francisco Government Television.